Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete the cox network with gig speeds everywhere it's internet built for tomorrow today cox bringing us closer in cox serviceable areas speeds vary and are not guaranteed cox terms apply other restrictions may apply sports arenas are places of passion Whether it's a high school basketball game or the Super Bowl, spectators don't just watch the game, they participate, they sing, they roar with support. They are emotionally invested in the action, and so sports can become a catalyst for incredible human energy. And yet the essence of sport is, of course, competition. Which means that the crowd does not only cheer for their side, they often cheer against another. We humans seem to like that to unite against a common rival, which on a sports field normally just leads to an exciting, invigorating atmosphere. And yet there are times when the tribalism gets way out of hand, where the passion around sport turns into bitterness and aggression and even all-out violence. That is what happened on a colossal scale in Constantinople on Tuesday, January the 13th, 532 CE. The sport was a chariot race, but the real action would spill out to the crowd, leading to total chaos. Yet there was something a little different about this sports riot. Because normally at a post-match brawl, it is the fans of one team against the other. This time, however, the two rival teams did something unexpected. They joined forces against an even larger enemy. And it was the combined power of this enormous sports crowd that would leave a city in ruins an emperor and his staff cowering in fear in the palace, and thousands lying dead in the streets. I'm Peter Laws, and today on Hometown History Europe, you better keep your head down, because we are going to throw ourselves into the very center of one of the most devastating and shocking sports events in history, the Nika Riots. The events we're about to explore took place in medieval Constantinople, which, if you're familiar with the band They Might Be Giants, is better known today as Istanbul, not Constantinople. 
the name officially changed in 1930. Now, Istanbul is huge. It's the largest city in Turkey and the most populated city in Europe. 15 million people live there. And it's so big, in fact, that 35% of its inhabitants don't actually live in Europe at all. That's because it's just one of five cities in the world that straddles two continents, Europe and Asia. So it's big. But back in the year 532, it was called Constantinople. And we start our journey in the city's magnificent sports arena, the Hippodrome. In the 5th century, the Hippodrome was the place to be. It was the social hub of the city, a place of connection and discussion. And also, official ceremonies would take place there too. It really was a magnificent venue decorated with purple hanging curtains and beautiful tapestries and statues of emperors, gods and heroes. And yet the real heroes of the day weren't made of stone or bronze, but flesh. They were out there on the track of the Hippodrome racing horses with chariots in huge sporting spectaculars. The Greek word Hippodrome means the way of the horse. Chariots from opposing teams would hammer against each other at the Hippodrome, galloping down a U-shaped track while a gigantic crowd of up to 100,000 cheered on, many of which had bet huge amounts of money on their team's success. Medieval historian Eleanor Yonaga. There are four main chariot teams in Constantinople at the time, and the blues and the greens are the main two teams, but there's also the whites and the reds. We mostly talk about the blues and the greens, however, specifically because they were the two biggest teams. And... For a long time, we considered that most people who picked particular teams had very specific um, political policies or religious ideas that were connected to the, of the ruling classes or religious orthodoxy. The Greens in particular were thought to be connected to the non-ruling classes, so people in particular who didn't own land, although they might have been wealthy. Now, having said all of this, Alan Cameron wrote a really important book about the Nika riots um, in 1976 called The Circus Factions. And according to him, the factions don't actually line up with specific social groups or religious divides, actually. And what he says is the thing is that sport was kind of the most popular thing that was happening in Constantinople. Um, So yeah, we tend to say there's no possible way that this much drama could happen to groups of people just based on charioteering. But he says, no, that's just how big, you know, the chariot races were. And so the games are actually more important than politics uh, for a lot of people who were living in Constantinople at the time. And we see this, for example, play out in 501, um, where the Greens ambush the Blues uh, in the amphitheater, and they kill 3,000 of them. Um, And four years later in Antioch, there's a huge riot that's caused uh, by the triumph of uh, Porphyrius, who was a very famous Greek charioteer who had defected from the Blues. So these things in and of themselves were incredibly important and people really cared about sports. So, you know, it's not that far removed, for example, from football or soccer team support. You can see a lot of violence or a lot of factionalism that is specifically related just to sport, and it doesn't have anything to do with politics. Since the sport of chariot racing was so popular at the time, the choice of who to support was a huge political decision for the emperors, and most would choose one team to back. 
For example, Theodosius II ruled from 408 to 450. He was a supporter of the Greens, and he actually changed the seating arrangements in the Hippodrome to give the Green supporters really good seats. And then after him, Martian felt that the Greens were getting too powerful, so he barred Green supporters from taking public office. But some emperors tried a different approach. Um, Anastasius attempted to stay neutral when he took the throne in 491. Um, And so instead of being a green or being a blue, he decides to be a red because they're a really small team. So it's kind of like intentionally picking an incredibly small club so that no one will pay attention to you. After Anastasius came Emperor Justinian, and it was him who would be in power when the Nika riots occurred. Multiple chronicles of the time list the characteristics of Justinian, saying that he was short, he had a good chest, he had curly hair and was handsome, and that he was a good Christian. And alongside these basic characteristics, they also included this detail as an equally important descriptor. He was a supporter of the blue team. His wife, Empress Theodora, who will play an important role in the day of the riots, she also favored the blues, which might have surprised some people at the time since her father used to train bears for the Greens. And yet she had some good reasons to not support her father's team. The reason Theodore was actually a blue supporter is that her father died really unexpectedly. And Theodora's mother was left with three very young daughters, basically had no way to support herself because she'd been dependent upon her husband. You know, she was possibly an acrobat, but it wasn't really enough to to feed a family of four. So she remarried really quickly. Um, And after she did that, she takes all of her daughters into the arena and she says, oh, um, to the Greens, here's my new husband, please, you know, for the love of my my old husband who used to work for you, please employ my new husband. My family is starving. Um, And they refused to do so. They just ignored her. So then the Blues swoop in and they seem to have kind of smelt the blood in the water and they realize that there is an opportunity to kind of show their own magnanimity. Um, so they say, ah, we will find work for your new husband. So as a result of this, Theodora becomes a huge supporter of the Blues because they're the ones who looked after her and her family in these really dangerous times, whereas the Greens, she felt, had turned their back on her. So there was fierce division between these two teams, which would end up in scuffles, physical attack, and sometimes even brawls and bloody confrontations. And yet nothing, nothing could compare with the sheer scale of violence and chaos that came with the Nika riots of 532. Yet that would prove to be a very different disaster indeed, because while sport had fueled the previous unrest, what would make it explode and almost destroy the city was a pressure cooker of angst in Constantinople, because the people were not happy with how Justinian was running things. First of all, he was reclaiming a lot of land, especially in North Africa. And to fund these military campaigns, he brought in 26 new taxes in order to pay for the armies. And these taxes hit both the rich and the poor. So most people were not happy. But Justinian was also bringing in a set of new legal codes to reduce the power of both the Greens and the Blues and to increase his own power. And he brought these new laws in very quickly indeed. So by the first week of 532, the city was throbbing with a sense of tension and political irritation at Justinian's rule and his tax system. 
and both rich and poor reached boiling point when a riot broke out on January the 10th. Now, this was not the big Nika riot. That would happen in a few days' time. But this smaller uprising would play a huge role in the devastation to come. Now, Justinian saw this smaller riot as a tax riot, and he realized he had to be tough in response. He'd have to set an example to the people. However frustrated they were, they had to know that riots and public disorder would not be tolerated. So the January 10th mob were met with brutal force, and Justinian did not differentiate between greens or blues or indeed rich or poor. The rioters, no matter what, were rounded up and thrown in jail, and seven ringleaders were sentenced to death by public hanging. It would be a harsh yet clear lesson to everyone. This was a shock, not because it was hanging as such, but rather who was being sentenced to hang. The hangings that Justinian orders after the riots on the 10th of January are interesting because hanging is not the sort of punishment that one would ordinarily expect to see for people who are extraordinarily well-connected, which, of course, members of both the Greens and Blues are. Let's not forget, these are often people who work within the government or they're closely aligned to people who work within the government. So these are the sorts of people that you do not expect to be facing corporeal punishment, let alone actually being deprived of their lives because they've broken some laws. This is the sort of punishment that one would ordinarily expect to see meted out on the lower classes of society. So to hang members of the Blues and Greens was a direct slap in the face to people who considered themselves to be, you know, um, important members of society. And they don't expect to be treated as common criminals. Um, And moreover, this plays into the overall suspicions that were already there, that Justinian is attempting to limit the powers of the nobility, limit the powers of other other people, you know, wealthy people, well-to-do people in Byzantine society. So hangings take place all the time. It's not that much of an uncommon public occurrence. And indeed, it could be seen as a form of entertainment akin to chariot races. It's just that who is being hung is obviously much, much more important here. And it is a direct political statement. So When Justinian attempts to say he's cracking down, show that he is, you know, on the side of law and order and kind of hangs some blues and greens indiscriminately, what he's actually doing is kind of creating a unit of everyone else versus him. So the people were already appalled at who Justinian was willing to hang. But then something very unexpected happened at the gallows. Once the smaller riot was under control, the seven instigators were marched out of the city. A rope would be slung around their neck on a scaffold, and it would be a formidable lesson to anybody contemplating rebellion. And yet the executions went wrong. The seven men dropped with ropes around their neck, and yet the scaffold was not stable. It snapped. Two of the men survived the hanging, and the crowd who had been looking on with horror suddenly saw hope. They burst into action and scrambled forward, rushing to cut the two men down. And then they bundled these survivors to safety in a monastery nearby. I wonder what they thought as they hid in that church. Was this a sign from God that the divine hand was with the people and not the emperor by miraculously sparing two men from hanging? And was God bringing the people together at last? After all, out of the two surviving fugitives, 
One was a blue and one was a green. After years of being at each other's throats, these rival sports fans suddenly found themselves in league with one another against a larger enemy, the Emperor and his wife. The execution had been an embarrassing shambles and two convicted rebels had escaped, and so Justinian was worried that the people might be emboldened and tempted to riot again. How would he calm the city down? He decided to press ahead with another chariot race. Surely a day of sport would help take the people's minds off what had happened. Maybe he hoped that the tensions would return to greens versus blue rather than people versus emperor. But running that chariot race meant gathering all of those tense and angry people in one place at a time when the pressure in the city was at breaking point, and his decision would prove to be disastrous. The day of the next chariot race came round, Tuesday, January the 13th, 532, and thousands of greens and blues gathered in the Hippodrome, probably feverishly discussing those two surviving ringleaders hidden in safety but also sharing a sense of loss and fury at the five other men who had not been so lucky on the gallows. They now lay dead with a broken neck. And here was Justinian saying, hey, don't worry about that, just play sports. So let's say emotions were high, higher than they had ever been, in fact, when the blue and green supporters arrived at the Hippodrome that day. And we know that they started to express their displeasure immediately by chanting together. There were 24 races on the slate that day, and the entire crowd chanted against Justinian all the way through the first race up to the 22nd race. And it was a new sound for that arena, because now blues and greens were joining together as they called on Justinian to show the same sort of mercy that God had shown those people on the gallows. Spare the lives of these two escaped convicts, they said. And they thought that this would be a way that one could sway the emperor. Because, you know, after all, he is a blues supporter, so why wouldn't he want to spare the life of one of his own? Um, And, you know, if the Greens are joining them in that, doesn't that kind of display that there is some form of unity? Wouldn't that be, you know, a way for him to say, okay, I can show mercy because there's a little bit for everyone within this. So when these people are kind of feeling as though they're already out of power with the Justinian, when they're already feeling as though their own sway is being limited substantially, and they're kind of reduced to yelling at a chariot game, this kind of goes on to prove their point to them. You know, if they can't get an audience with the emperor, if he can't just commute these sentences when they, you know, if they ask him beforehand and they have to resort to kind of humiliating themselves in public, this is another way where they feel that they are being justified in their antipathy towards Justinian. And it really kind of plays into the idea that they have to do something violent in order to get the change that they want to see. So these chants for mercy grew more and more aggressive, and most worrying of all for Justinian, they were speaking with one voice against him. They were even said to have cried out, long life to the benevolent greens and blues. This sort of camaraderie was unheard of, and it was terrifying. It must have been like being at a boxing match and seeing the two long-term rivals in the ring suddenly stop fighting one another, and then they shake hands and turn to you in the audience and climb over the ropes to get you. It's not good. It was a buildup of all the frustration, not only of the last few days, but the last few years. And with a sense of fury growing, the blues and greens began to chant 
and it was something they usually shouted when cheering on their charioteer, and yet this time, this was aimed at the emperor instead. They called out, Nika, Nika, Nika. The Greek word from where we get the sports brand name Nike, which means to be victorious, to conquer, to overcome. And the crowd that day chanted that word toward Justinian. Conquer, conquer, conquer. And yet the emperor ignored them. So when Justinian ignores the crowd at the games, we're talking about a crowd of about 100,000 people, which is an absolutely huge number of individuals. Um, And especially even now, we would say 100,000 is a lot of people. But for the early medieval period, you know, getting that many people together in one place, that's uh, a lot. That's a lot of individuals to try to to quell the anger of. Um, They really, really feel as though um, they thought that they were going to get something from the emperor and he ignores them. So the first thing that happens is the Hippodrome itself absolutely erupts in violence. The people, now delirious with tension and frustration, started to attack each other in the stands. But more specifically, they spilled out into the streets to attack the palace, which was next to the Hippodrome. And this is where it becomes much more than just a sports riot. It became political violence, attacking the seat of Justinian's power. And so the riot was not just random chaos. The mob were actually making active decisions as they went around, destroying and burning specific government buildings. This was people bringing targeted violence to Justinian in the same way he had brought targeted violence to the blues and greens that he had hung from the gallows. When Justinian heard about the extent of the damage to the city, he decided to press ahead with more chariot racing the next day. Yeah, this guy seriously overestimated the calming power of sport. But this changed when the people marched to the Hippodrome itself and set that on fire too. So while the city burned and the riot raged on, Justinian and his closest advisors stayed holed up in the royal palace, dreading that the mob would actually get inside. And hiding with him were some members of the aristocracy. And while they were hiding, Justinian started to realize something. Some of these men might have their eyes on the throne. And so he dealt with the potential threat to his power rather swiftly. Eventually, he recognizes the danger of having some people who are seen as rivals for the imperial throne in the palace with him. So he expels them both from the palace, along with everyone in the Senate. Um, And he kind of lets them out into the street, into the arms of the mob. And here, Hypatius is actually dragged away from his house. Um, His wife is trying to intervene and stop the mob from taking him. But instead of doing anything violent to him, the mob says, here he is, this is Hypatius, our new emperor. And uh, he's proclaimed emperor. And then that helps him to overcome his initial reluctance. He's like, oh, maybe I can be the emperor. Uh, Fantastic. Uh, Perhaps I should go along with this. And it's at this point that Justinian says, okay, well, obviously some things are off here. We have got rival emperors being introduced. I'd better capitulate in some ways. So he says, all right, you know what I'm going to do? Um, I've heard that you're very upset and I'm going to remove people from office who are kind of seen as being responsible for uh, creating the most unpopular policies at that point. But the mob just isn't buying it and the riots continue. It 
calls into question a little bit what's going on for the rioters themselves, where, yes, obviously, um, some of their demands are political, but it it also just means that they're, it was kind of an all-or-nothing thing. It either, for them, it had to be the entire removal of Justinian, which they didn't necessarily say at the get-go, or it had to be that the rebellion itself was quelled. A substantial portion of the city was now burning in flames, set alight by the very hands whose taxes had built it. It was a catastrophe for Constantinople. And the riot continued for a truly shocking five days. And for a while it looked like the people were going to succeed and take control in a full-on uprising. Justinian had been too slow and naive in his response to these angry citizens, and all hopes of calming them down went up in the smoke of all of those buildings in flames. And now he had no option. He sent in troops to stop the violence. And when the swords hit the citizens, it turned into a horrendous bloodbath. Now, Justinian had been understandably tempted to flee the city, but it's said that his wife, Empress Theodora, was made of sterner staff. She convinced him to stay, saying that the life of a fugitive emperor would be unendurable and worse than death. And her speech would help change history. And it was probably the best advice Justinian had ever had, because the rioters did have a weak point. What made the mob so strong, you see, was that they had put aside their differences and joined forces. And so one of Justinian's generals, called Narcissus, realized that to stop this disaster, the key play was to divide the people again. So he did something rather clever. He started paying off leaders of the factions. And he also spread a rumor amongst the blues that once Justinian was dragged off the throne, his replacement would not be a blue, but a green. Once the news got out, it was like those boxers climbed back into the ring again, and they turned on one another, like they had in so many previous scuffles. And with all that internal discord, they lost their real strength, togetherness. Which meant Justinian's troops were able to take advantage of them. They swooped in and started to wipe everybody out, killing both blues and greens without exception. And it was a massacre. And yet the massacre worked. After five days of devastating chaos, the city was eventually brought under control. Yet the effects on the city were catastrophic. The death toll that happened in Constantinople is absolutely horrific, and it shakes out to about 10% of the population at the very least. Um, and it would take absolutely years for the city to recover from this, not only just because of the death toll and the fact that it took a while to repopulate, uh, but because a lot of the families who were involved lost absolutely everything due to being seen as being connected to the rebellion. Um, the Hippodrome itself was shut down and races were suspended for five years. And while that might seem like a slap on the hand when so many lives had been lost, you know, when we think about chariot racing being such um, an integral part of culture in Constantinople and even the way that people thought about themselves, that was a huge shift for them. Um, it also completely devastated the city in just a kind of physical sense. Um, Constantinople, let us not forget, is the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. And it is the most functional part of Rome at that point in time. And so Constantinople was kind of like the shining light of the Roman imperial world. So to be tearing it down and burning it up really was a huge knock to the concept of the imperium or power of the Roman emperor itself. And a particularly 
difficult thing for them was that Hagia Sophia had been damaged in this. Um, now, Hagia Sophia, you need to kind of think about in the same way that we think about St. Peter's in Rome. Um, it's almost exactly the same. So this is the huge church that is the cathedral for the city of Constantinople. It's a huge site of pilgrimage. And it's also directly bound up with the idea of Constantinople itself. So it's kind of like the religious equivalent of a palace. And it means for the people in Constantinople that theirs is one of the most important religious cities on earth. So if you lose this church, you lose this kind of fulcrum of power that Constantinople has over other contingent parts of the empire. The building is so incredibly important that Justinian swings into action almost right away to rebuild it. It's only a few weeks after the riots when he gets to work on Hagia Sophia again. And he really does a great job with it, to be honest. Um, his version is the one that still stands today. Um, and it's an absolutely incredible building, you know, a wonder of world architecture. So it's this amazing feat that Justinian manages to pull off. But still having said that, it's one of the first things that he needed to do because the idea of losing such an important religious building was absolutely devastating to the generalized populace in Constantinople, but also the concept of what Constantinople actually stood for and what its function in the empire was. And when you think of all his missteps and the picture of him cowering in the palace that day, you might assume that this disaster would be the end of Justinian's reign. Yet just like in sports, it's amazing how some people manage to make a remarkable comeback. Justinian not only held on to power after this riot, it actually helped him. He'd wiped out many of his enemies over the course of a few days, and he was able to acquire a bunch of wealthy estates in the aftermath. And of course, despite his floundering at the start, the fact that he had won against the rebels made people respect him enough to not try it again. And even the fact that the city was in ruins meant that Justinian was able to rebuild and beautify it in the exact way he wanted. The Nico riot, fueled by frustration, was meant to bring about regime change. But ironically, it just made Justinian stronger in the end. He reigned for many years afterwards, until his death in 565. All the riot achieved, really, was the deaths of thousands of citizens and the ruin of a city that they had lived in and paid for with all of those taxes. Sport is a little bit like culture, like politics. It plays into our need to belong to a group or a tribe. You see this everywhere, from the office to the school to the church congregation to the friends lists we keep on social media. We develop cliques and we curate those cliques to make sure we have our type of person in our circle. We want to feel part of a group, and that is understandable, but it often ends up becoming a side. And when we see the world as being about sides, it's only one step away from it being about enemies. So the only thing to bring enemies together is a bigger enemy, it seems. We sometimes see this in times of war, for example. Former rivals put aside their differences for a moment and they join forces, and when they do that, they become very strong indeed. Yet it doesn't take long to settle back into our sides again, our tribes. Like the greens and blues of the Nika riots, who may well have taken the city had they not turned on one another in the end. Like the boxes, they couldn't resist the call of that smaller ring. 
climb back in and pummel one another instead, and when they did that, they failed in their quest. I wonder, in our world that is often so divided culturally, politically, socially, what would it take to bring us together today? Does it always have to be a larger enemy? Would we suddenly like one another again if the Earth was, I don't know, invaded by aliens tomorrow? Or could the answer be something more radical? To simply be reminded that maybe the fans of the other team are not so different to us after all. That despite our positions, we might be stronger together. Well, it sounds intriguing and even hopeful. But who knows? Maybe for us, that's a race that's going to take a little longer to win. I'd like to give a special thank you to medieval historian Eleanor Yarniger, who added so many helpful details to the Nika story. Do check out her brilliant book, The Middle Ages, An Illustrated History, which covers not only the Nika riots, but many other events in the so-called Dark Ages. But for now, I'm Peter Laws, and you've been listening to Hopetown History Europe. Goodbye. Welcome to Prime Video's culture-rated collection. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis' The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby! Or add to the experience by buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.